It's 1980. Welcome to Rock and Roll High School. Rock and Roll High School? Do you want to I am Miss Togar, and I am the new principal of this school. And who are you? I'm Riff Randall, rock and roller. The only girl I ever dream about at night is Riff. I've done more detentions than anyone in the school's history. Are you a virgin? Ah, how about a cheerleader? Nice set of pom-poms. Term wanted Riff. But Riff wanted to live a rock and roll fantasy to the music of her favorite group. The hottest band this side of the Iron Curtain, the Ramones! To commemorate the 40th anniversary of Rock and Roll High School, we are speaking with the writer of that iconic film, Mr. Richard Whitley, who's going to tell us a little bit about the inspirations for that film and, and how it came to be. And it's great to have you on our show, and so we'll we'll get into it and just let you uh, kind of tell us a little bit about the uh, the origins of of the uh, the script and how it eventually came to get financed by Roger Corman and all that stuff. Well, thank you, Adam. Uh, good to be here uh, in film school. Uh, my uh, writing partner and I, Russ Devanch, we went to uh, a school at Southern Illinois University um, in Carbondale, Illinois there. Both uh, grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, both growing up uh, as movie lovers. Russ uh, graduated a little bit before me, but after I graduated, you know, uh, from film school, and film school was great, you know, just being exposed to all kinds of films from uh, Hollywood to foreign films, uh, Bergman and Truffaut and everything. Going to film school was amazing for me because, you know, I wanted to see 365 movies a year. That was my determined. I was determined to do that. And... um, I only saw 320 because I fell in love that one summer. But, hey, I got a screenplay out of it, so that was good. Um, um, But I put everything I owned in my car, uh, you know, with my TV typewriter and my spec scripts in the front seat. uh, They were most cherished. And um, came out here to Hollywood uh, hoping to make it and um, with uh, dreams of being a, a professional writer. And Russ and I um, went to New World Pictures, which was Roger Corman's company at the time, and we took our student films, that's uh, 16 millimeter films, in a can, literally, in one of those little round cans, and we walked in there and we said, uh, you know, in essence, uh, we said, hey, Roger Corman gave big breaks to Francis Ford Coppola and Peter Bogdanovich and Martin Scorsese, why not us, you know, and so we gave them our resumes and uh, freshly typed out of uh, off of our electric typewriters, and um, um, they said, "Okay, great. Well, we'll consider that." And then we said, "Hey, are Alan Arkish and Joe Dante here?" And the reason we asked for Alan and Joe is because they had co-directed a movie called Hollywood Boulevard. Now, Alan and Joe, if you didn't know this, were just the editing czars at uh, New World Pictures. They were editing all of the trailers for Roger Corman's movies, as well as the movies that Roger was. Re- uh, distributing at the time, which are the movies by Bergman and Truffaut and uh, people like that. And so they were just expert at editing trailers as well as editing movies, but they wanted to direct. 
And so uh, Roger let them direct a movie called Hollywood Boulevard for only $60,000. That was the budget. And they were ingenious because they used how to, uh, how do you make a movie for that little amount of money? They used clips from other movies. So, you know, it's a Roger Corman movie from the 70s. So if an attractive blonde is, has a machine gun and she's gunning people down, then you would cut to footage of the Filipino army being shot that's from another movie, right? And so um, uh, it, it was ingenious, but uh, I was on the film society in college, and we had booked this movie and loved it. It was just terrific. Paul Bartel was in it, Mary Warnoff, both of whom would go on to be in Rock and Roll High School. And so when we said, is Alan Arkish and Joe Dante here, by luck, they were sitting right there in the lobby. And, you know, we gushed over Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, my God, we knew lines of dialogue. And they were thrilled that anyone had seen the movie. And so, uh, you know, we asked him if you would look at our student films. And they were just genuinely nice guys. And they said, sure. And then the, uh, the, the receptionist said, hey, you guys want to earn $15? We said, absolutely. Well, show up tomorrow at Griffith Park, and uh, you'll earn 15 bucks. So we get there tomorrow, uh, the next morning at 7 a.m., and they said, you're going to be mutants. And we said, great. And so they had cut ping pong balls in half. They glued them to our eyes, and they put rags on us. And we saw on the rags it said Western costume, and they were used as the rags that were worn by the lepers in the movie Papillon with Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> and so we have ping pong balls cut in half over our eyes and wearing rags, and then we need the mutants right away. And we're there at 7 o'clock, and we're still sitting around at 3 in the afternoon, and the mutants have been used. I remember one of the, the guys who was the mutant said, I can't take it anymore. And he ripped off the ping pong balls and stormed off the set. Um, and so, but uh, finally, you know, around four or five in the afternoon, they said to our group of, you know, motley mutants just sitting around there with ping pong balls in our eyes in Griffith Park. And it was great because it was the cave that was the cave uh, that the Batmobile drove out of in the old TV show. And it was also um, had been used in many other Roger Corman 1950 sci-fi movies. The doors had posed in front of the cave. It was kind of iconic. They said, who wants to do stunt work? And I said, come on, Russ, we should do it. And so they put us in the cave and, and they said, just jump up and run backwards. And then we'll put in the laser effects as if you were shot. We said, great. And we did such a good job that later, around 11 o'clock at night, I don't even think we got dinner. <laughs> it's like $15 a day. And so we go into the cave, and Russ and I will be the last mutants that David Carradine and Playmate of the Year Claudia Jennings will encounter. And so we were killed by David Carradine several times um, that night uh, with fake blood in our mouths. And it was uh, so, oh, my God, we're in Hollywood, and we're being killed by David Carradine, and we're playing mutants. It was just very exciting. And, and then about a week later, Alan and Joe called us and said, hey, we like your student films. And um, and so they gave us this script. It was called Girls Gym. And they said, we wanted it to be funnier. We want to go in a different direction, a lot more comedy. And so your test, your audition, is to take any 15 or 20 pages and make it funny. And so Russ and I went to my uh, kitchen table in my studio apartment across from Universal Studios, which has now been torn down as a metro station. And mm -hmm. um, we rewrote 20 pages. And all those years of growing up on the Three Stooges and Jerry Lewis and, and Woody Allen and Frank Tashlin cartoons and everything, we just, you know, 
oh my God, here's our chance. And they liked the pages and um, we got hired to, uh, to write the script, um, which was pretty darn exciting. We're going to get in the Writers Guild and everything. And um, uh, what happened was Alan uh, was, wanted to do this uh, movie, uh, which was called Girls Gym at the time, but uh, he had to go off and do some directing on the Mutant movie. Um, but so Russ and I had to get jobs, and so Russ uh, became not only a PA but an editor there at New World, um, and I became a tour guide at Universal Studios. And um, so we eventually started writing the script in my kitchen table at night while Russ was an editor in the day and I was a tour guide during the day. We were writing the script. And then, you know, in the script it would say either the band or the group because – um, I should let you know that uh, the idea for the movie was Alan's, Alan Arkish's. It's a story by him and Joe, and they had concocted a story. But I think the the real uh, origin of the idea was Alan had grown up um, in New Jersey, and he um, was uh, obsessed that he wanted the Rolling Stones or the Yardbirds to come to his high school. <laughs> That's what he wanted, a band to come to his high school. And so, and, you know, uh, he wanted this rock crazy girl riff randall to you know to to want to write for the band and everything all those ideas came from alan and uh, alan is amazing because he uh, had worked at the fillmore east and so his knowledge of music was incredible and his love and passion for movies was unparalleled combine those two together and you know that's where a lot of the ideas for rock and roll high school came from um and the story and uh you know uh then russ and i brought the the script to life you know and uh, bringing riff to life and 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 tom and everything and you know we we really bonded because i remember when we turned in our outline for the um for the screenplay uh, Alan was very excited, and uh, Alan and producer Mike Fennell, who's terrific, we walked down to the corner of Vine and Selma. So that's just one block east of Hollywood and Vine. Uh, you know, it's kind of iconic, and uh, Alan pointed down to the star on the Walk of Fame of writer-director Preston Sturges, and he said, this is, is who our inspiration should be. We should try to write a movie and make a movie like Preston Sturges. And I was just stunned. Oh, my God, I'm only in town for a few, just a couple months. I'm a block from Hollywood and Vine, and I'm living my dream because here's someone who we're bonding with completely, and he wants to, and his hero is the same as my hero, Preston Sturges. But Alan took our um, silence as, you know, thinking we didn't know who he was. And he said, you do know who Preston Sturges is. And we said, of course, Sullivan's Travels and Hail the Conquering Hero and Miracle in Morgan's Creek, of course. And he said, yes. And so we went and had pizza and we were talking about what the movie should be. And, you know, and after writing the script, Alan invited uh, Russ Devonch, my writing partner, and I to the set. He goes, you guys need to be on the set, you know, in case we need gags or, you know, jokes, and everything. We want you to be part of this. And, you know, first time screenwriters being invited onto the set by the director happens as often as Haley's Comet comes by, you know. But that was kind of the, the whole sense of esprit de corps at, at New World. We were all kind of, we were in our 20s. We're all movie lovers. Many of us had studied film in college. And, you know, we, we knew the same references. We could reference everything from a Jerry Lewis movie to a Truffaut movie. And it was just all this just a great sense of family and you know in the old days they would have said let's put on a show like in a mickey and judy movie but it, it really was like that wow that's very interesting 
And almost as impressive is that you were there only a couple of months and you were acting alongside Claudia Jennings. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> absolutely. And um, no, no, it, it was it, it was it was amazing. You know, here we are in this iconic, you know, Griffith Park cave and, you know, Russ and I both have uh, fake blood in our mouths, and you know, and it was just such a high-class production that the camera was set off to the side, and all David Carradine had to do was slide the sword between my body and my arm, like how you do it when you fight as a kid, right? When you pretend to sword fight. And unfortunately, whether it was dark or whatever, David uh, rammed the sword into my stomach and my thigh and my chest. He couldn't get it right between my arm and my body. And um, I was swallowing the fake blood and coughing. And I remember, you know, he did it so many times I was on the ground, you know, with the wind knocked out of me. And I remember David going, hey, man, nice working with you. <laughs> so and um uh, Alan Arkish's joke is, you know, that that's perfect training to become, that's perfect training to be a screenwriter for Roger Corman is to start as a mutant. Uh, but it was at a crazy time because, as, as I mentioned, when we were writing the script, we would always put the group or the band because we knew that there was going to be a band uh, that Riff Rando wanted to write for um, and that they were going to come to the school. And so Alan and producer Mike Fennell were meeting with Devo, and they met with Todd Rundgren, and eventually through Sire Records, they got the Ramones. And um, uh, so I remember the first night we met the Ramones, which was kind of amazing. We uh, Alan uh, Arkish invited us over to his house, and he and Mike Fennell were there, and um, he had a 16-millimeter uh, projector, and they were going to show uh, Hard Day's Night to the Ramones to show them not to be afraid of lip syncing because, you remember, this was before MTV. Mm-hmm. And so um, we are going to show Hard Day's Night, which was uh, Alan's favorite movie. And as I mentioned, Alan had, uh, you know, just an encyclopedic knowledge of, of rock and roll and, and film. He had worked at the Fillmore East. And so he had seen all these bands, you know, uh, play, you know, live from the Allman Brothers, Grateful Dead, everyone. And I remember the Ramones saw Alan had like a wall of LPs and they were just stunned. Wait a second. You like the Grateful Dead and you like us? You know, and of course. And so I remember we started watching Hard Day's Night and it's near the opening of the movie where the they're in the train car and the girls are trying to get through the wire mesh at the band who is playing. And Alan was saying, see, this is, you know, they record the music first and then they lip sync to it. And the Ramones weren't kind of getting it. They said, no, 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 that's John, Paul, George and Ringo. They're really singing. And I remember Alan stopped the projector and explained to them, no, they record the music first and then they mouth their lips to to show that they're singing. That's what you guys are going to be doing in the movie. We're going to record the music first. And what we find out is that Johnny Ramone had uh, like a couple hundred movies already on tape. This is 1978. And he owned all these movies and knew old movies, you know, quite well. And I mean, their favorite movie was Freaks. If remember the chant by the, the freaks at the dinner, you know, Google gobble, Google gobble, one of us, that kind of morphed into Gabba Gabba. 
and, you know, writing songs about, you know, uh, being a pinhead, you know, because the pinheads were in the movie Freaks. So mm-hmm. their knowledge of old films uh, was was quite vast. And so when Alan referenced, you know, Astaire Rogers movies or Gene Kelly or Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, he said they recorded the music first and then they lip synced. They completely understood it. So then we continue to watch Hard Day's Night, which was just, you know, one of the great musicals and movies of all time. And I remember Russ and I were so inspired by the movie because, you know, we love the movie. We went home and we wrote all these new scenes for the Ramones because, oh, my God, it's going to be just like the Beatles in Hard Day's Night. I remember we gave them to Ellen Arkish and he goes, these are great. They'll never be able to say any of this dialogue. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> um so then we, when we started shooting, it was just, it was terrific because, you know, the Ramones were, just, you know, Joey was just a sweet guy. You know, they weren't going to be doing, you know, a whole bunch of lines of dialogue, but very, very nice guys and sweet. And, um, but, um, I mean, come on, we had Grady Sutton was the, the school, the, the school, uh, the school board commissioner. If you remember at the very beginning, you know, mm-hmm. he's the guy. He's the old guy. He was in the bank dick. Are you kidding me? It's like Russ and I, our heads were exploding. You were in the bank dick. You worked with W.C. Fields. You were in my man Godfrey. It was just, you know, it was amazing. And so, um, and, you know, Mary Warnoff and, you know, and Paul Bartell, we couldn't ask for a better cast. Right. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty impressive. It really is. Uh, I was just going back over the cast list and I've uh, I've talked to a few members of the cast over the years. I have spoken with Mary Warnoff. I, I did about a 45-minute interview with her a while oh, it's been a few years back, but yeah, she she had nothing but glowing things to say about her experiences of making rock and roll high school. She certainly enjoyed it and and uh, yeah, but I, I was very curious about the the genesis of the project and how it came to be, and I, that was a really quick turnaround for you uh, in the movie business. Yeah, <laughs> just getting out there. Yes, um, you know, uh, we were very very fortunate, um, you know, uh, to to hook up there with those those folks at New World, but it was. It was like an instant bonding experience because, as I mentioned, they were all most of everyone was in their twenties. They'd grown up on movies, loved movies, and everyone kind of like gravitated toward Roger Corman uh, because he had given the breaks to so many people. Uh, you know, not not only the folks I mentioned, but also Jonathan Demme and Joe Dante and you know Jonathan Kaplan, all these great filmmakers. And, um, and 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 directors and producers and um, and of course Dick Miller who was in almost every one of his movies and we were lucky to have him in Rock and Roll High School as police chief, you know, quoting the very famous line, "They're ugly, ugly, ugly people." <laughs> um, uh, but um, but it's uh, it, it was an amazing time. It's like sometimes you you don't realize it when you're experiencing it uh, how incredible it was. You know, um, it was like a four week shoot. You probably heard that the budget was anywhere between two hundred and eighty thousand or three hundred thousand dollars. Quite a low budget, and um, I mean, I remember the joke on the set was, if you don't eat it today, it's quiche tomorrow. They would just put all the leftovers into a quiche pan, you know, and um, <laughs> and and serve it, so we weren't always sure. Or were, or were we eating the Tuesday surprise that the cafeteria ladies were going to be throwing at us? I just, I, <laughs> it all got kind of mixed up. It was an amazing time, you know, and Russ and I felt very fortunate. And I hope you guys know that uh, my writing partner, Russ Devanch, was the f- character of the freshman who got shoved in, into the lockers. 
I wasn't aware of that, actually. That's something I did not know. I'm glad you illuminated that. Absolutely. He was skinny enough to be shoved into a locker and a filing cabinet. And we, and in the script, we actually had him show, uh, in one other place. Um, uh, I think uh, some of these script pages are on previous uh, incarnations of uh, a Shout Factory uh, Blu-ray, is that um, backstage, uh, with the Ramon scene and backstage, aside from them ordering pizza, of course, and... Joey uh, eating wheat germ and riboflavin uh, to get his energy up. Um, uh, we had them open the closet uh, in their backstage dressing room, and there was nothing but leather jackets and jeans in dry cleaner bags. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> they didn't want to make fun of their image, so we cut that joke. And also, I think it was D.D. was going to be opening up his base case and there was Russ as the freshman being had been stuffed into the case because he'd already been in a filing cabinet. Why not the base case? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember that, and I just didn't realize that I didn't make the connection that that was the same person. So <laughs> what a small world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's weird because I remember – being in high school, you know, and um, someone else had asked me, did you ever have a detention? Um, because, you know, of course, they get detention for life from Ms. Togar. Um, and, uh, yes, I was given detention in in, in junior high and, of course, in high school. So Russ and I kind of channeled a lot of our uh, high school experiences, uh, fantasies, and, of course, nightmares into the script. <laughs> between seeing people shoved in the locker to also, uh, you know, no matter what happened in gym class, the teacher would always say, just walk it off, you know. (laughs) And uh, it it was a terrific experience, and Russ and I felt very fortunate to be part of it, to be invited to the show business party by Alan Arkish and Mike Fennell and Joe Dante and Roger Corman. Uh, When I did speak with Mary, she said that the Ramones, uh, they were very cooperative. She said they pretty much minded their own business when – uh, and, and they would just go to their trailers and, and eat pizza uh, a lot of the time. <laughs> I remember her telling me that story. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, as, as you've seen the movie, they didn't have much dialogue to do. Um, and uh, but they kind of uh, were, you know, um, as, as you may or may not know, when they were looking for other bands, one of the uh, bands that it, it was down to like the Ramones and Cheap Trick. And Cheap Trick was very popular at the time. You know, they they were about to come out with their Live at Budokan album, which was quite a big hit. And it would have made sense, you know, that the character of Riff Randall, when she's in the scene with, you know, with um, Kate Rambeau, that she's talking about how attracted she is to Joey Ramone. Well, if she was attracted to Robin Zander, the lead singer of Cheap Trick, it would have made sense. But it's kind of much funnier that it's Joey Ramone. And, uh, you know, of course, the reason we didn't get cheap trick is for a perfectly good Roger Corman reason is they wanted more money. <laughs> but I, I think in the long run, um, the Ramones helped uh, with the longevity of the movie. I mean, you know, you know, their popularity has only increased and um, you know, it's, it's perfect. And you may have heard that, you know, the, the title of the script went from girls gym to disco high because Roger Corman at the time saw the popularity of Saturday Night Fever. And, uh, you know, so, hey, let's do a movie called Disco High. Alan Arkish had uh, uh, his passion and knowledge of, uh, of rock and roll was unparalleled, and it had to be a rock and roll movie. And, uh, 
And my memory is that he told uh, Roger Crumman, he said, would you go to a discotheque? And he goes, yes, I would. Would you go to a rock and roll club? No. Well, that's why it's got to be rock and roll. You know, you you have to have something. You The music has to piss people off. It has to piss adults off. You know, if you're not listening mm-hmm. to music that pisses your parents, you're doing something wrong. It's got to be rock and roll. And so, um, of course, Roger understood completely. And he said, you're absolutely right. And uh, so Alan convinced him and it became rock and roll high school, which is had to be rock and roll. You know, as I said, the Ramones, their popularity has only grown. So that's kind of helped. I think, you know, the movie kind of stay in the zeitgeist. I remember someone said, have you ever looked at the poster? It kind of looks like the Animal House poster, which had just come out the year before. Yeah. And um, and it kind of does. I love the artwork of the Rock and Roll High School poster, uh, but I remember John Landis gave me a, um, uh, uh, an Animal House poster, and he signed it, Does this look familiar? Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, it does look like the Animal House poster. But, um, you know, but... Um, uh, anyways, uh, so kind of riding that wave of Animal House, but um, it's 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 a kind of a different movie, you know. It's it's kind of a, a little bit of a uh, our movie is a little bit of a cartoon come to life. Someone called it a punk beach party movie. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good analogy. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but yeah, that works. A- absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's you know because it's I, I remember. I was in the car. This sounds like a scene out of a movie, but I remember in being in the car when the movie had been released, and it was like a parents uh, group, and they were all very upset that, oh my God, this is horrible. They're blowing up the high school. And um, I was kind of screaming at the car radio, you know, as if they could hear me, um, that it's, come on, wait a second, there's giant mice going to rock concerts, and the doorman, the cameo of Alan Arkish wearing his Fillmore East shirt, says, we've been having a lot of mice explode at these concerts, you better wear earphones. Come on, it's a, it's like, and then the mouse is at the high school wearing an apron that says "I hate mouse work," worried that her children in the school are going to blow up. It's like kind of a cartoon if you're really taking it that seriously. We also have paper airplanes flying out of lockers, sticking in people's ear. So exactly. um, um, it was kind of a, a fun cartoon. So hopefully, don't take too, take it too seriously. <laughs> Unfortunately, there are always those who who seem to do to take things a little bit too seriously. So yeah, you're gonna run into that, I guess. Uh, so I, I'm assuming that uh, you were actually there during the production when they were actually shooting, and you got to witness some of that. I'm I'm assuming. Yes, yes. Uh, I was I was uh, Russ and I were there the whole time, and um, you know it was a ton of fun. I remember the night that they. Uh, blew up the high school. We didn't actually do it, but boy, does it look like it. Producer Mike Finnell was kind of ingenious. The word was that a lot of those students that were uh, like the, the the band, you know, wearing the green and white uh, uh, um, uniforms and costumes of the band, and the green, white, and yellow was perfect because those were the colors of the Green Bay Packers, and it worked perfectly with Vince Lombardi High. And so the rumor was that, uh, the word was that Mike said that a lot of the students that were extras 
um, and the band members, they were taking the SAT the next day, and they had to get out of there by like 10 o'clock at night. And so what Mike did was he went into the school and he turned back all the clocks. So if they looked at the clocks, it would seem earlier <laughs> so we could get them to stay long. And Mike had done research that, um, you know, for the weather, uh, because it, you know, they needed to, it to be a ter- certain temperature for the explosives, because the explosive that they were using would be more explosive when it was colder. And so he did all this research. I don't know if it was through a farmer's almanac or whatever on the, that certain night of the year in Los Angeles. And it, would, and it said it was only going to be 50 degrees. That would be the lowest. Well, that night it got down into the 30s. Which made the explosives more volatile. And so those explosions are bigger than we thought they were going to be. But boy, do they look good on camera. Um, <laughs> um, and I, they had like three cameras going. And, you know, um, you know, of course, the explosions were all happening, you know, a little bit in front of the school. But the way it was filmed, it really looks like the school is blowing up. Uh, I heard that like some of the uh, students got a little bit of sunburn because the explosions were so big. And people were definitely complaining in all the neighborhood because it was really loud and it was and it was much later than you know uh, we thought it was going to be um, you know and that everyone thought it was because the clocks had been turned back so the explosions were huge and so the police showed up and uh, so we had to shut it down but we had to come back the next night um, you know for some close-ups uh, you know and. Uh, PJ is with Randall's pushing the plunger down and everything. And so what they did is they had bars for flames to make make it look like the school was still, you know, on fire and everything. And um, the magic of movie making. It, it was it was a ton of fun being there on the set the whole time, you know, um, and especially the, the concert. You know, the concert is, you know, a, a Alan just did an amazing job. You know, it's kind of the, the definitive uh uh, cinematic portrayal of the of Ramones concert and um, and Mike Finnell once again working for Roger Corman got the ingenious idea of you know we're going to go broke if we have to pay the extras at the concert we'll get them to pay to be at the concert and so um, local DJ at the at the punk radio station KROQ Rodney Bingenheimer who I think is driving the pink Cadillac when the Ramones first pull up in the movie. And he was an extra in the movie as well, uh, advertised on his uh, radio show, uh, come to see a Ramones concert. And I think $2, $5, I can't remember how little it was. And so they paid to be at the concert. And so you needed to uh, do a lot of coverage on those songs, you know, with so many cameras. So after a while, the the crowd got a little restless because they had to play the same songs over and over again to make sure we had the coverage. And so then we'd get rid of that crowd and then a new crowd would come in also paying two to $5 to see the Ramones. So I think there was at least two or three sets of people coming in, two or three sets of crowds coming in to see the concert that were paying. After the shoot, uh, PJ Souls invited us all over to her house for Christmas dinner. And, um, so Alan was there in the Ramones, and she had put out like a Norman Rockwell spread of food and um, worthy of any magazine cover. And um, I can't remember if it was Johnny or Dee Dee pointed to one of the platters and said, what is that? 
And, you know, it was like to them, it was like a glob of something orange. And, you know, PJ said, those are sweet potatoes. And they said, we don't need things that are orange or sweet. I don't think so. <laughs> a Christmas with the Ramones, it sounds like the worst NBC holiday special, doesn't it? Uh, that would have been interesting. Well, before I, I go right quick, very quickly, I do have to mention one other film that's on your resume that I was curious about is Pandemonium, which used to turn up on cable quite a bit. Uh, this was with the Smothers Brothers, I do recall, I believe, and I, I think you were associated with this somehow or, or another. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Ask away. It, it didn't make much of a splash in theaters, but on cable, uh, it, it was fondly remembered by those of us who grew up during that era, and I was just curious for maybe maybe one story about that, uh, just very quickly. Um, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad that it's fondly remembered. Um, I wrote that uh, with a different writing partner, uh, Jamie Klein, and um, I remember Jamie and I uh, were, uh, you know, uh, hanging out. I met Jamie at the comedy store. He was uh, kind of a successful comedian, and I dipped my hand in trying to do stand-up. But when I saw people like Robin Williams, uh, David Letterman, and Gary Shandling, kind of the Mount Rushmore of stand-up comedy, I said, what am I doing here? But I met Jamie, and I remember, you know, we were hanging out, and we went and saw, I think, Friday the 13th, and it was in an empty movie theater, and we were just sitting there doing bits and making jokes. And then as we were walking out, we go, wait a second, this is funny. We should start, you know, we, we, we should, you know, maybe we could do an airplane version of this. And this is before, you know, long before Scary Movie and long before anybody else had done it. And so we went back and saw it again uh, with a legal pad sitting in the back of the theater when nobody but was there. And we just started writing all these gags. And um, we said, God, this is funny. And we came up with an idea. And, you know, we told our uh, told uh, our, our agents. And so we started pitching it around. And we got a gig and, you know, got, got paid to write the script. At the time, the, the title was Thursday the 12th, which I thought was a much funnier title. That. I remember that, yes. It was called Thursday the 12th, and so um, we we saw it as like, you know, an airplane kind of parody of the slasher movies where it would look very dark and, you know, and all that kind of stuff just looked like those movies. And I remember the uh, the opening page of the script, it said, most of the characters in the, the script are cheerleaders who are blonde, young, and good-looking, just the kind of people that deserve to die. <laughs> <laughs> So it, it, it was like, hopefully people, you know, were started laughing right away and Thursday the 12th. And, um, and so, uh, you know, Jamie, Jamie and I, you know, uh, saw it as that. And so, you know, we were lucky to get Tab Hunter as the killer, you know, Blue Grange and Tab Hunter was just an amazing classy guy. Oh my God, was he classy. He had recently had, I believe, heart surgery and he was there knitting and he was just so nice. And I remember, you know, we were talking to him and he said, oh, my God, all the rumors about me. And here I am knitting. And um, he was just <laughs> but he was just a sweet, nice guy, a real professional. And um, uh, Donald O'Connor was in it. And Donald O'Connor was amazing. You know, it was all the cameos that we had in it. We were fortunate, you know, like an airplane. And Donald O'Connor was just terrific and i remember we jamie and i were nervous going up to donald o'connor because we thought oh my god everyone's going to talk to him about singing the rain and make me laugh but we wanted to mm -hmm. you know 
ask him something different. And we said, oh, my God, you were in the, the Buster Keaton story. And he goes, how do you remember that? How old are you? And we said, oh, my God, we love Keaton. We love Buster Keaton. And, you know, what was that like? And he said, oh, my God, he told me, he taught me how to take a fall and everything. And, you know, it was an old school Hollywood biopic where not much w- truth was there, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Donald said he turned to Buster one day and he said, did this really happen? And Buster said, nah, but they gave me 50 grand and I bought a house in the valley. I bought a, <laughs> so, um, but, you know, and it was, it was famous. Buster built a ranch in the valley. It was qu- quite wonderful. If you, you, there's documentaries of, about him, you know, where he, he's there. And so, uh, you know, talking to Donald Connor about working with Buster Keaton was kind of a thrill and Kay Ballard and she was terrific and Tommy Smothers. Oh my God. You know, he was one of our heroes, you know, um, mm-hmm. on the Smothers show. And, uh, so that, that, that was amazing. And, um, it was, um, it was great to, to work with those people and, you know, and, 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 and judge Reinhold, you know, uh, this was before, you know, um, uh, um, uh, fast times. And it, it was weird because I was also working with Amy Heckerling on a script that uh, unfortunately didn't get uh, produced. And she was looking to, she was casting fast times at the, at the time. And I said, you really should meet this guy, judge Reinhold. And so, uh, that, that was a fortuitous thing. You know, he got into fast times and cause judge was terrific in fast times. And uh, we were mm-hmm. lucky to have him in our movie and you know carol kane and and uh miles chapin and mark mcclure we were lucky those guys were all terrific and um uh it, it was you know it was great working with those people it, it, it was a lot of fun and i'm i'm I think Jamie and I would be honored to know that it had such a, a you know, a life on cable and that there's fans of the movie, you know, um, it because it, it, you know, it, it didn't do well at the box office. And that's kind of a polite way of saying it didn't do well. I don't think, you know, I think, um, you know, um, I think they test marketed it in Louisville on Kentucky Derby weekend. You know, it was like, oh. you know, um, it didn't. It, it didn't do well at all, and so um, I guess sometimes the word cult movie is a polite way of saying it really bombed at the box office. Um, but um, uh, but I'm glad to hear that uh, you know that it did well um, you know on cable, and that there are fans. Um, uh, you know, we were sorry that they changed the movie to Pandemonium, uh, the title to Pandemonium, because we did like Thursday the 12th better. But oh, yeah. while we Making the movie uh, right before ours was released, a movie called Saturday the 14th came out, and that's why they changed the title. Um, yeah. Even though ours ours was in production, um, uh, you know, uh, first, I think, they, they, they kind of usurped us. And so they came to Jamie and I, and they said, we need a new title. And our favorite title, since cheerleaders are being killed, was Sis Boom Kill. We thought that was a, um, we thought that would be a better title, but they went with Pandemonium. Uh, but um, it did. Um, the script, uh, uh, you know, was seen by uh, uh, Joel Schumacher, who then hired uh, Jamie Klein and I to help uh, punch up his uh, movie DC Cab. So the script uh, went on to to get us some work, and so that was nice. And um, so I'm glad to hear, Adam, that uh, that people were fans of that movie. I'm I'm surprised. 
Oh yeah, we grew up. We it it, it was a, a staple in our household, and 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 I've talked to a lot of people who are in my age group. I'm in my late 40s now, and uh, a lot of people in my age range remember it very fondly. So there there are fans, and let's just hope uh, that the people over at Screen Factory maybe it's a title that they could consider releasing. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, well, shout. Shout Factory does a great job, you know. They've done yeah, previous incarnations of Rock and Roll High School on Blu-ray where uh, mm -hmm. Russ and I had a commentary. And um, the last incarnation, um, I think it will be on the new version of Rock and Roll High School. The last incarnation, one of the extras had said, um, uh, it said I think it says, photos from the archives of Richard Whitley. Uh, now, um, everyone should know that those archives are actually a nice container that I bought at the container store, uh, but archive sounds so much better, doesn't it? Um, for years, you know, Rock and Roll High School was just only seen, you know, in the, at the midnight shows, and um, um, we, we heard that people would dress up like at Rocky Horror Picture Show, but they would dress up like the hall monitors and give out demerits, um, which I thought was uh, pretty funny. Um, uh, but, um, and you know, the movie, you know, Joe Dante has a terrific site, which I'm sure you guys all know about trailers from hell oh, yeah. and, um, the trailer of rock and roll high school was the, the commentary was done by Eli Roth. Um, so that, that's pretty cool.